Welcome to the Executive Function Podcast, where we make the invisible keys to success easy for you to teach your child. We'll go beyond theory to proven action, helping you create peace and independence at home and at school. With your host, educational author, award-winning teacher, and celebrated learning coach, Sarah Kesti. Hey Tribe, welcome to the Executive Function Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Kesti, and today we are doing the 2019-2020 school year in review. I don't think we will soon forget this school year, most likely for its spectacularly strange ending with distance learning. At every transition in time, it's important to take a little while to reflect on what went wonky, what went right, and what we learned. This week on the podcast, we're doing a review of the 2019-2020 school year and its indications for executive function. Here we go. We will start with the wonky, the things we didn't expect or that we thought would go differently. First up, independence. Distance, or you might call it remote learning, asked students to maintain their school workloads at home without teacher support or the study-friendly spaces that school provides. This put a lot of pressure on students' executive function skills and challenged them to find supports on their own. To start, Some students realized that they relied on the built-in prompts of the school day to help them initiate tasks. Some of our kids need visual prompts and reminders like due dates written on the board that help them keep track of what's coming up. Others relied on seeing teachers in their schedule to support their systems of getting work started and turned in. Without that regularity of prompting, Many of our students felt fuzzy about what was due, when it was due, and how to prioritize. Having lots of time available as school hours was helpful to some of our students. So some of our students actually shifted their at-home learning time to accommodate their sleep schedules. So a lot of my teenage students and clients just slept in later and worked later. That accommodated them. For others, though, having that loose boundary on time meant no real external push to stay on or off task, and so their brains just chose fun over work. And remember, this isn't a reflection of their characters. Our brains are programmed to seek fun things to give us those neurotransmitters we need to feel good and engaged with life. So you're not a lazy person if this happens. You just need some strategies to get your brain back on track. One unexpected challenge our kids faced was the shock of independent work after being in such collaborative school environments. Our classroom activities are often engineered to get kids to think and talk together. And often this is part of the preparation and learning that teachers set up and that's necessary to complete independent work or even assessments. So we get our kids ready and learning through collaborative work, 
But then distance learning took away many of the opportunities to collaborate, and that left our students reflecting that they felt isolated, and they also kind of felt lost without that assist of their former learning partners. So to think about what independent learning relies on for executive functions, here's just the top, I think it's six, the top six that I could think of like off the top of my head, there are many layered in, but think about this. If you are independently learning, so your teacher provides your work, or maybe you're logging in for a lesson and then you're doing the work, something like that, you have to be able to initiate tasks. You have to have organization, and that is of your mental space, your physical space, and your digital space. You have to self-monitor to stay on task when there's other things that maybe are distracting you or other things that you have to take care of. Like I have a seventh grade girl who also babysat her one-year-old nephew the whole time. So she had to self-monitor to stay on task as much as she could, but then also make sure that he was staying safe. Um, another executive function that you had to have during independent remote learning would be prioritizing. So how do I prioritize when I can hear my phone binging, but I need to work? So work versus play, which assignment came first? And I'll tell you some good success stories in a little bit about kids that actually learned some great prioritizing strategies out of this. So a fifth executive function that was required during distance learning was attention and focus. Hello. It's really hard to be on an electronic device all day and not fall into the internet. <laughs> Trust me, I did it too when I was trying to remote teach. So usually it was about executive function, but then you look up and two hours have passed and you're, you know, a little bit smarter and a lot tired and a little bit hungry <laughs> because your brain was interested in something because sometimes your attention and focus is a little bit off. So that's another executive function that we asked, asked of kids, but maybe didn't teach. And then emotional regulation. So handling the frustrations when you have a deadline, but of course your computer crashes or it has to update right before your very important um, meeting online, something like that. It happened to all of us and we had to really regulate our emotions, use those breathing and thought strategies that we teach at school now in real life to be able to get through this. All right. A second wonky issue was too many platforms. There is so much amazing technology to support learning, but when each teacher chooses a different platform, app, or online learning tool, it can spell disaster for our kids. Many of my clients and students reported frustration that their teachers were using too many digital spaces. Teachers designed lessons on certain platforms, had students do learning and research on yet other ones, had students create work on, again, more platforms, and then had students return work through yet another digital space. Here's a real example. John, not his real name because duh, I'm not going to give out my kids' names or shame their teachers. It's just food for thought and something we can learn from. So John received 
an email with an attachment for a PDF of Google Slides. He had to sign into his email account to get the message, and then he had to sign into his school Google account to get the slides. Inside the slides, he found his work for the week. He needed to download a poem by clicking a link, then watch a video of a piece of writing in another link, which took him to a new website. I'm gonna pause right here. Notice how much on your working memory you've already had to sign into two different things. Notice that he's having to now keep track of not only what to do, but where to find it and where he put it on his tablet after it was downloaded. Plus, when he's taken to the new website, there's a chance an ad or other content will steal his attention and pull him into the internet rabbit hole. Okay, once John had both the readings, he needed to download his Google Doc assignment where he'd do his writing. He also needed to sign into his online reading account and complete three articles after searching for the titles. If he didn't pass the articles, he'd have to go back to Google Slides and find the titles of his makeup articles, then go back to the reading website sign in again, and these passwords never match the district passwords, <laughs> and try to find and pass the new articles. After John finished his Google Doc, he needed to share it with his teacher on Google Classroom, pressing yes two times to ensure he first attached his work and then submitted it. And that pressing yes twice is a surprisingly consistent hurdle for students. Even without executive function issues, it is tricky. And they think they've turned their work in and they haven't clicked submit. Ooh, what a frustration. But I'm going to stop there with the example because even though that covers one <laughs> of John's six classes, because I think you get the idea. Now, imagine the tax on your attention and working memory to realize that teachers use different platforms and websites. So those were mostly Google-based examples, but there's also Canvas, there's also Universal Classroom, I think. I mean, there's a ton of different platforms that are all designed well and have pretty student-friendly interfaces, but they're different with different logins and different ways to interact. The brain cardio required to even access the work was exhausting. And we haven't even begun the actual work that will impact John's grade. Teachers had the absolute best of intentions when designing online learning for kids. And most of us had to do so very quickly while also balancing the stress and demands of sheltering in place. So this isn't a knock on my fellow teachers, but it certainly is worth consideration in terms of the executive function demands we put on our kids. We can use this lens to reflect on the disengagement schools complain about. I mean, if I had to run 12 miles just to get to my classroom, then jump over six desks, do a cartwheel, make three baskets, before I teach, I think I'd be pretty likely to disengage at some point too. The last bit of wonkiness of distance learning is using supports without a plan to fade them out. 
and tribe. This is where I will admit my own shortcomings. Not being physically present with my students made me realize just how much I relied on my being there to help my kids. And this isn't a bad thing. It reflects my stubborn unwillingness to let anyone fail. I'm always, always looking for a way to teach better, to find a new support, to make it happen for a kid. But in doing so, I was creating a wee bit of dependence because I didn't have a fade plan for many of my supports. I didn't stop to reflect on how a student could independently access the type of support they found helpful without me physically there. This was painfully obvious in my students with attention challenges. So many of them struggled to learn at home when they didn't have my gentle prompts, attention-grabbing teaching styles, and brain breaks to support their focus. Their success with me is a very worthy and fulfilling goal, and I know there is not one of us who can go full-blown independent without needing some help at some times. Like, hello, anyone out there grow, harvest, and process their own grain to make bread and repair their own cars and deliver their own mail? Didn't think so. Needing help is not a fail. So none of us will ever be 100% independent. But we, and I'm, I'm talking to me, <laughs> we've got to do better at thinking of fading the supports when we put them in place. I have to think backwards in terms of what the supports will look like in years later of school or the workplace or adulthood. On the positive side, Distance learning gave our kids a chance to internalize and adjust some of the supports because they absolutely had to. I'm talking with my kids to see what worked for them so I can prioritize those strategies for future students. So what went right in the 2019-2020 school and coaching year? Our kids learned to prioritize and play the to-do list game mostly because they had to, but they did. The positive flip side of an unexpected challenge, such as switching to school from home model overnight, is that it helps you find out what you're made of. Many of my students and clients reflected that they grew from the challenge of distance learning. There were a few days they wanted to quit, for sure, and me too, but in all, Many kids said they felt like they learned more about themselves as learners. A few kids set up new systems to organize, and many more reached out for help with organizing. And it is true that the first step to improving yourself is realizing you need the help, so kudos to them. Part of being under such new and stressful circumstances is that we're forced to adapt and sometimes great things come out of our adaptations. My biggest example of this is my students' improvements in prioritizing. They were often able to figure out what was worth the most points and for which class they needed to focus and they would start there. And some of my kids focused on their lowest grades to bring them up Others focused on classes that were almost or just barely passing to keep those grades safe. So their systems of prioritizing were different, but what was the same was that they were developing their skills. 
They didn't wait for someone to tell them what to do. They listed assignments based on what they prioritized. I also saw some clients and students figure out what didn't matter much for their grades, moving those items to the bottom of their list. And I know this sounds like bad advice from a teacher just saying skip it to some things, but think about your real life. If you and your family are hungry, but there's also muddy shoe prints on the floor in the hall, you're going to let your kids and partner go without food, right? So you can clean it up. No, you're going to make a meal and either solicit help with the mud or be like Elsa and let it go. As adults, we absolutely use this advice and we don't do all the things that others may think we should. So this art of balancing is something we can teach our kids now. And maybe they will grow into adults who don't feel so guilty about these lists that never end because maybe they'll know how to write good and realistic lists. Another great thing is that we had time at home to learn how our kids learn and what they need. Guys, I saw so many memes about teachers being saints, and we are not. There are a lot of factors of the school social construct, like the building itself, the principal, the classrooms, the schedule. All of those things reinforce the teaching and learning routine. If you struggled to play teacher as your child's parent, that's because you're human and you're their parent. You don't have to replace teachers, even in distance learning. The great part of being a fly on the wall while your child did school activities is you got to see firsthand the way your child learns. And granted, you might have been a fly on the wall that had to remind the human child to work, but you got to see which subjects he did with ease and which he tried to avoid. You got to see some of the misconceptions and strengths, and you maybe even got to try some adaptations that you've heard about but hadn't asked your child yet to try, or your child wasn't comfortable trying in front of their friends. So I have an example. One of my clients was a first grader with attention issues and difficulty articulating his hand muscles. And you can imagine writing is really hard for him. Being at home gave him the chance to privately try using his voice to speak into his tablet which wrote down his thoughts for him. He can also practice what he might say to a peer who asks what he's doing and why. So he can rehearse how to respond to someone that says, what are you doing? And the more comfortable he is explaining it, the more likely he will be not to feel embarrassed and actually use the accommodation in class. And an extra bonus is he'll also shut down any potential bullies because he won't give them the emotional reaction that they want from him since he's been practicing responses. Another example is an eighth grade student with dyslexia. He never wants to have his tablet read to him because again, he's afraid of embarrassment. But at home, he embraced the support, and we explored ways to disguise the support, mostly with his earbuds, so his peers wouldn't even notice at all. He's much more comfortable with it because he was able to try it out with a lot less pressure. 
Now that parents have seen the demands of school, I think they'll be coming at it from a more informed perspective. And teachers will also start next school year with a very deep appreciation for the homeschool connection and will likely communicate a lot more consistently. We grow from our struggles. We definitely don't have it all figured out. I've spent more than 15 years in the field and deeply diving into executive function, and I'm still learning every day. But the important thing to remember is that at each transition, there is much to learn when we reflect on what went wonky, what went right, and what we learned. And I'll be interested to hear from you. Drop me an email at sarah at sarahkesty.com or through Facebook or Twitter. I'm planning a bunch of new episodes and would love to do some listener Q&A. Sending you all my love. Have a great week. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Executive Function Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please head over to sarahkesty.com where you'll find more resources and chances to connect with others. And please remember to like and review the show wherever you listen to this podcast. We're eager to transform the lives of even more families. 